Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Matthew chapter 2, 13. Choir and instrumentalists, thank you so much for your role in leading worship today. I'm always grateful for that. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. I have not forgotten that we have studied this text before, uh, but in our previous study, our focus was mainly the great doctrines of the Christian faith, and now I want to work back through the end of Matthew 1 and a portion of Matthew 2, focusing upon some of the practical implications for our daily lives. Now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. When Julie and I were in training for our missionary service at the Missionary Learning Center, right before our appointment by the International Mission Board to Bucharest, Romania, uh, we were asked to meet with an attorney and fill out some important paperwork. We had to complete a will, and we also had to complete a document designating who we wanted to be the legal guardians of our children in case we face some uh, unanticipated death on the mission field. The will was easy enough, but deciding who would be the legal guardians of our children was much, much more difficult. That was a painstaking decision because we knew that we needed to choose very, very wisely. Uh, we wanted, in the event of our death, for our kids to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We wanted our children 
to be loved as deeply by those guardians as they were loved by me and Julie. We wrestled with that decision, we agonized with that decision, and we made it very carefully and prayerfully because we wanted our children to have the very best of parents. I think that the Father in heaven was probably thinking along those same lines when he sent his son into the world and placed his son in the home of what we call the Holy Family, Joseph and Mary. I believe that the Heavenly Father wanted his son to have the very best of earthly parents, guiding him, raising him, instructing him in his childhood, so that Mary and Joseph represent for us what we might call ideal Christian parents, godly parents who are a model to us all. Now, I recognize that last Sunday was Father's Day, June the 18th. I'm going to be mainly addressing fathers today, but that's because the focus is Joseph, and Joseph was a father. But I do believe that the principles we'll learn from Joseph's life and character equally apply to grandfathers and to mothers and to grandmothers. All of us need the kind of character that Joseph exhibited here if we're going to be the parents and grandparents that our kids and grandkids need. What are these characteristics that made Joseph an ideal father? Well, first of all, Joseph was characterized by absolute obedience to God's commands. Matthew frequently and emphatically describes Joseph's uncompromising commitment to obey every commandment that God issued him. In the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, we find angels repeatedly appearing to Joseph, giving Joseph instructions from the Lord, and then we find Joseph doing exactly, precisely what the angels had ordered. Take a look, for example, back at Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21. And you'll find that the angel appears to Joseph and issues two commands this time. Do not be attained to take Mary as your wife, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then verse 24 tells us that Joseph did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Now, we could have put a period there and it all been done. But that's not what Matthew does. After telling us that Joseph obeyed the commandment of God, he goes on and spells out the details of that obedience. He says, Joseph took Mary as his wife, obeying commandment one, and called his name Jesus, obeying commandment number two. Now, if this just happened once in the Gospel of Matthew, we could write it off as coincidence but it doesn't happen just once. It happens again and yet again. Uh, take a look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And this time we'll find that God issues Joseph four commands. He says, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there. Now, once again, 
We are told that Joseph does as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, but Matthew doesn't leave it there. He spells out in detail, step by step, these acts of obedience. He goes on to say, Joseph got up, commandment one, took the child and his mother, commandment two, fled to Egypt, commandment three, and remained there, commandment four. And then we see it still again in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. Three commands. And what do we see? Verse 21, he rose, commandment one. He took the child and his mother, commandment two, and he went to the land of Israel, commandment three. Why does Matthew do this again and again? It's not enough for him simply to say, this is what God commanded, and then simply, Joseph obeyed. He wants us to understand that Joseph obeyed God to the T, that he did not neglect a single aspect of God's instruction. Now, why is that? Well, it's because Joseph serves in these early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew as a model of true Christian discipleship. He has the kind of righteousness that every follower of Jesus Christ should aspire for. But Joseph doesn't merely serve as a model of obedience to every believer in this room, though he does that. His example is particularly challenging to every father and grandfather and mother and grandmother in the room as well. Because God wants the spiritual leaders of the home to be characterized by this level of obedience. Fatherhood, for example, entails a lot more than just making the income, writing the checks, funding the education, buying the car, paying for the wedding. The supreme responsibility of the Father is spelled out for us in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following, where God's people were commanded, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and then adds, these words that I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then addressing parents, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk down the road, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. The supreme responsibility of the spiritual leaders of the home is to love God with everything that we are and motivated by that love for God to give spiritual instruction to the members of our family. And it's clear that setting the proper example of godliness is key to that instruction. Do as I say, not as I do, is an approach to parenting that is destined for failure. We cannot demand a higher level of obedience from 
our children and grandchildren, then we are willing to yield to God ourselves. And so Christian parents need to be models of obedience, examples of faithfulness, setting a worthy example for our children and grandchildren to emulate. All my life, I have greatly respected my maternal grandfather that we affectionately called Dak. My paternal grandfather died when I was only four, and I have just the vaguest memories of him. But I spent an enormous amount of time with my mother's father. My grandfather instructed me by his example and not just his words. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that my grandfather was an avid pipe smoker, hence the pipe-scented candle in my office. From my earliest memories, I can still pull up the aroma of that pipe tobacco mixed with the apple that he loved to smoke. And because of my enormous respect for my grandfather and because uh, I love the smell of that pipe, when I reached my mid-teens, I bought my own pipe and my own little pack of tobacco. And when we went out on his back porch at his home in Tennessee and sat down for our evening chat, he pulled out his pipe, struck a match and lit up. To his shock, I pulled out my pipe, struck a match and lit up. I saw the furrows in his brow and his eyebrows slanted as he studied me while I puffed on that pipe. And soon he began to lecture me about all of the dangers of tobacco use. He went on and on and on, but it was all in vain because when he finished his very long lecture, I simply said, but Dak, you smoked a pipe all your adult life and you're as healthy as a horse in the conversation. He watched me as I puffed on that pipe a little longer, you know, attempting to blow those rings into the air like he was able to do. And he finally said, okay, Chuck, I'm going to make a deal with you. And I thought, is he about to offer me money to quit smoking this pipe? He said, I'm going to make a deal with you. You put down your pipe and never pick it up again, and I'll put down my pipe and never pick it up again. My jaw dropped. I could not imagine my grandfather without that pipe. It was almost like an appendage. <laughs> and he was willing to give up something that I knew he actually loved and enjoyed because he thought that was what was best for his grandson. You know, he could have sat there and lectured me until he was blue in the face, and it would not have fazed me. But when he was willing to set that kind of example for me, it brought about immediate change. When my granddad was 92 years old, he had to go and live in a, a nursing home after the death of my grandmother. And when he did, many of his possessions were divided up among the kids and the grandkids. I was asked what I wanted. I didn't even think about, you know, precious heirlooms and 
expensive antiques. I just asked for two things. That old hammer that we had used in our woodworking projects together and in my granddad's pipe collection. Because nothing reminds me of his deep love for me, much like those old pipes and the recollection of that day when he made a sacrifice for my good. Here's the point. Children cannot just be lectured about godliness. It must be demonstrated to them. Because example is always more powerful than exhortation. I'm afraid in the church today we've gotten this dangerous idea that we're just supposed to bring our kids to church and it's the church's responsibility to give them spiritual instruction. That's clearly not what Deuteronomy 6 teaches. It's primarily a parental responsibility to give spiritual instruction to kids in the home. But the fact is that all of our spiritual instruction will fall flat if our children or grandchildren see us as hypocrites who don't actually practice what we preach. The most powerful sermon that we can ever preach to our kids is simply living a holy and obedient life. Matthew 119 describes Joseph, the earthly father, adoptive father of the Lord Jesus as a righteous man, a righteous man. And that is the kind of parent and grandparent that every one of us should aspire to be. But not only is Joseph characterized by absolute obedience to the commandments of God, he is characterized by Christ-like compassion to others. Remember that before the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and announces that Mary's pregnancy is a result of a miraculous conception, he assumes that his fiance has been unfaithful to her pledge to him. And as he wrestles with how to break their relationship off, his initial plan is to divorce Mary secretly. Now, he had other options. <laughs> Under the Old Testament law, at least, he could have drugged her before the court and he could have requested her execution. Now, we know that during the Roman domination of Judea and Galilee, that the Jewish people no longer had the right to exercise capital punishment on their own, although they, they sometimes did it anyway. Despite that, Joseph had other options. For example, if he had publicly prosecuted her and demanded a very public legal action, he would have had the opportunity to seize her dowry, all of her earthly possessions, and he could have left her penniless. Mary would have lived and died in abject poverty, and Joseph would have enriched himself. This could have been sweet revenge to a man who thought he had been betrayed by his wife-to-be. Also, if he had insisted on a public 
divorce, it would have ensured that Mary would have endured the reproach of all the people in her village. She would have been the target of nasty rumors. She would have been the victim of constant sneers. But though Joseph was surely devastated by Mary's assumed infidelity, although he was surely heartbroken over the suspicion that she had been unfaithful to him, he did not lash out in vengeance. He acted nobly, compassionately, and mercifully. Even in this situation, he wanted to do what was best for Mary. Now, Matthew tells us that Joseph took this approach because he was a righteous man. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph being a just man or a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When many of Matthew's first century Jewish readers encountered that statement, they would have been baffled. Because Matthew's saying it's because Joseph was righteous that he wanted to treat Mary so mercifully and tenderly. The common view of justice and righteousness in that day is, Joseph, if you were really a righteous man, you'd throw the book at this woman. You'd come down on her with everything that the law allows. But what Joseph is doing here is modeling a different kind of righteousness, the greater righteousness of the Lord Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the kind of righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, the kind of righteousness that loves the enemy, that turns the other cheek, that forgives graciously. Joseph's example shows us that true righteousness is not characterized by harshness, but characterized by love. And the example that Joseph sets for us here shows us that the good Christian parent or grandparent is someone who is going to be characterized by tenderness, compassion, mercy, and a willingness to forgive. It's hard to underestimate how much a simple hug from a parent or grandparent can mean to a little child that wonders why anyone would possibly love them. It, it's impossible to underestimate how much a simple word of encouragement can impact their lives. That some of the most meaningful words that a child will ever hear are the simple words, I forgive you, that Joseph models for us here. The way we relate to our children when they blow it can either build them up or it can scar them for life. Always struggling to gain approval, always fighting for some kind of acceptance that they should never have had to learn, earn in the first place. My dad was a tough man, uh, law enforcement background, National Guard. 
and he raised his four boys, me being the oldest, with what we might call military-style discipline. Wasn't a very physically affectionate man, but I never had any doubt that he loved me. Because of all the people I've ever known, my dad was my greatest encourager. He was telling me, Chuck, you can do this when I never believed that I could. And then when I did it, he took more pride in any accomplishment than I ever took in what I had done. But my dad was a strict disciplinarian. But despite that strictness, there were times when he could be amazingly compassionate and merciful. Uh, one of the memories that comes to mind is when I was in the, about the fourth grade. And to be honest with you, I don't remember what I had done or what I hadn't done, but I was in big, big trouble. And my mother had confronted me and she said, you just wait till your dad gets home. Sent me up to my room to wait. That was always a terribly long wait because I knew what was coming when my dad did arrive and I would just have preferred to get it over with. I waited and waited and waited and my dread of my dad's return increased with every waking moment. Till finally I heard him come through the front door of the house. I, I heard my mom and my dad discussing what I had done or hadn't done. Couldn't make out all the details of the conversation, but then I heard my dad's heavy steps coming up the stairs and I knew what was coming. And I started praying fervently, oh Lord, please help me. Because you see, uh, my parents believe strongly in corporal punishment, as do I. I think it's biblical. But they didn't just spank their kids. Uh, they gave what we call in the Deep South, whoopings. Uh, whoopings are weeping and gnashing of teeth, pains of purgatory, spankings. And I knew one was about to come. So I was pleading to the Lord for mercy. And I am pleased to say the Lord heard my prayer. And I, I think my dad probably did too. Because he walked in to my bedroom and he said, now Chuck, your, your mama has told me what's happened. She sent me up here to give you a spanking and, and you probably deserve one, but I don't think so. He said, but the thing is, if I don't spank you like your mama has insisted, then your problem becomes my problem. So this is what we're going to do. I want you to lean over the bed, and I'm going to pull off my belt, and I am going to whoop this mattress beside you as hard as I can, and I want you to weep and wail like you ordinarily do, scream and holler at the top of your lungs. At first, I thought he was joking. I began to wonder, is this some new cruel trick that parents have invented to torment their kids. But it became obvious pretty soon he meant it. So I leaned over the bed and he pounded that mattress and I yelled at the top of my lungs 
Unfortunately, I have never been a very good actor. Wasn't a very convincing performance, I'm afraid. As a matter of fact, after it was all over with, my dad said, son, was that really the best you could do? We have to walk downstairs and, and face my mother, you know, and I try to pucker my lip and try to act as if I've just emerged from the torture chamber. But she takes one look at the two of us and she says, you two aren't fooling me one bit. <laughs> well, you could have felt the tension in the room. And that tension between my parents lasted for several days. But my dad never once complained, and to this day, that's one of my favorite memories of that man. Here's the bottom line. Children are going to disappoint their parents. They are going to disobey. They are going to rebel against our authority. They're going to embarrass us. And when they do, discipline is necessary and it is, when properly exercised, for their good. But discipline must always, always be tempered by love. And when the lesson has been taught, forgiveness must be granted freely and lavishly. Because if fathers or grandfathers withhold forgiveness from their kids and grandkids, I assure you that it's going to be very difficult for that child to understand and accept the forgiveness of the heavenly Father whom we represent in the home. But Joseph is a father who's characterized by absolute obedience to God's commandments. He's a father who is characterized by love, compassion, a willingness to forgive. And he is a father who is characterized by bold faith in God's gracious providence. First few months of Jesus' life must have seemed like an emotional roller coaster to Joseph. And he's awakened in the middle of the night. He's told, your son is about to be killed if you don't rush out of this home and head to a place where you have never been a thousand miles away. After the angelic warning, Joseph has to take his wife and his newborn baby in the middle of the night to a foreign country to escape Herod's wrath. No time to prepare for the journey. Now, Joseph was a humble carpenter, probably had no cash reserves, only real resources that he had to fund the trip were the gifts from the magi, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, but he knew that would not last forever. What would happen when those resources ran out? Jewish carpenter didn't have a lot of prospects for finding work in a place like Egypt. After all, the architects and craftsmen of Egypt were famous throughout the entire world for constructing things like the great pyramids that have endured even to our very day. How could a poor Jewish carpenter with 
meager skills, hoped to find work in a place where he didn't know the culture, where he didn't speak the language, where he didn't understand the odd ways or the technology. And where would they live? When Jews traveled throughout the Jewish world, they could expect the hospitality of their fellow Israelites, their brothers and sisters. But in Egypt, who would ever open their doors to this needy family? There was not even time to purchase or make a tent. This family is probably going to live and sleep under the elements as they make this week-long, weeks-long, months-long maybe even, trek to this foreign land. That would be pretty frightening because if you're like me, I, I never really worried about money and finances and things like that when I was a single guy. But suddenly, when I have a wife and babies to take care of, all of those concerns are heightened enormously. As whether or not I'm worried for myself, I'm worried for them. That Joseph sets out in faith because he is absolutely convinced that where God guides, God will provide. Joseph trusted God when his family faced difficult circumstances. And the faith that he exhibited in this time of crisis would be a cherished memory and faithful model to his sons and his daughters. I'm pleased to say that my dad, certainly not a perfect man, that my dad was someone who was characterized by this kind of bold faith in God's gracious providence. He went through some hard times. I remember many days when he wondered how ends were going to meet as he, on a meager salary, tried to provide for a family of seven. And one day I asked my dad why he never seemed to worry about finances when my mother was always so anxious about them. And he told me, and when he was just a college student at Florida State University there in Tallahassee, he was newly married, had a, a brand new baby girl, that they had spent almost everything. And he had gone to the grocery store to get the essentials for the family to live just for the next few days. And he said, after I emptied my pocket and put it on the counter, it still wasn't enough and I wanted to put something back on the shelf, but I couldn't put anything back because all of it was absolutely necessary. He said, and then I remembered an old antique coin that I had punched a hole in and wore on a, uh, a leather thong around my neck. He said, I untied the thong and I, I slid that coin off of the leather strap and I put it down on the counter and it was exactly enough to pay the bill. He said, but even then I walked away wondering what am I going to do? Because at that point I was absolutely penniless 
But he said, before I made it out of the store, the manager of the store walked over to me and said, young man, uh, we need someone to help bag groceries. You need a job? And he said, I started bagging groceries when I wasn't in classes at that little grocery store. And month after month, it was always just enough to get us through. That memory carried my dad through some really tough financial times. Times when the family was that close to foreclosure. Times when the family was that close to bankruptcy. But in all of those situations, I never once saw my dad panic. I never saw him fret or wring his hands. He was absolutely convinced that God would carry us through. Why? Because he had learned that when you lean on the everlasting arms, you are safe and secure from all alarms. And one of the greatest gifts that we can give to our children and grandchildren is leaning on those everlasting arms and showing that they are more than capable of holding us up. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I hope that the power of the Holy Spirit working through the principles of Holy Scripture today has moved you to desire to be the kind of spiritual leader in your homes that Joseph was, to be characterized by obedience, to be characterized by Christ-like compassion and mercy and forgiveness, to be characterized by bold faith in God's gracious providence. But I don't care how determined you are to fulfill any of those desires today, you will utterly fail without the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Only God can enable us to be the kind of father that Joseph was, the kind of parent or grandparent that this man had become. In other words, we need Jesus. We don't just need Jesus for forgiveness of our sin, though we desperately need him for that. We need Jesus because only he can transform our lives and mold us and shape us into the kind of person that will be a blessing to our families rather than a curse to our families. Ask Christ to change you now. If you have not already, pray to him and say, Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I deserve your punishment. I know there is nothing I can do to make up for my sin. But I believe that you lived the perfect life I can't live, that you went to the cross and took the punishment for my sins in my place so that I don't have to be punished. But please forgive me. Save me. Rescue me from the punishment my sins deserve. And, and Lord Jesus, change me. Make me the man or woman that you desire and that my family needs. Be my God, my Savior, and my King. 
If that's your commitment this morning, in a few minutes when we sing together, I'm going to ask you to come forward and tell me about that commitment so that I can celebrate it with you. We won't embarrass you in any way, but I'll pray a prayer of thanksgiving for the gracious work that God has done for you. We'll explain the next steps in your Christian life. Many of us in the room have been Christians for years and years and years. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to continue his transforming work and make you the mother, the father, the grandparent that your families need? When I was a boy, every Father's Day or Mother's Day, our church sang an old hymn written by B.B. McKinney that expresses my prayer for us all today. I hope that you will pray it with me as I read it. God, give us Christian homes. Homes where the Bible is loved and taught. Homes where the master's will is sought. Homes crowded with beauty your love has wrought. God, give us Christian homes. God, give us Christian homes. Homes where the Father is true and strong. Homes that are free from the blight of wrong. Homes that are joyous with love and song. God, give us Christian homes. God, give us Christian homes. Homes where the mother in carrying quest strives to show others your way is best. Homes where the Lord is an honored guest. God, give us Christian homes. God, give us Christian homes. Homes where the children are led to know Christ in his beauty who loves them so. Homes where the altar fires burn and glow. God, give us Christian homes. Father, this is our prayer. Please hear and answer. Give us Christian homes with godly leadership. In Jesus' name, amen.